Good morning, church. When I was a little guy, before I was nine, I was regularly in the business of construction. Construction. As far as I was concerned. And this was my tool bag. Do you know what you can do with these? Pry bar? As long as you're careful. Sometimes you have to straighten it back out. Screwdriver. Very helpful hammer but you have to keep your fingers on this side. If you can find a flat one like this, it's especially good. If you need to break things, you might want a bigger one, but it can be done. Now, I must say that my carpentry especially lacked a certain finished look. Most things were made from scraps and things we could find. Most things were made in some old tree with the nails we could pick up on the road or someplace else and beat straight enough to reuse them. For whatever reason, they wouldn't give us real tools and real nails and things. Maybe it was just to keep us busier. But the interesting thing about these tools is that you can put a screw in with one of these. It can be difficult, especially if it's a Phillips head screw. It usually slips. It usually kind of falls out of the slot for you. You can even do it this way if you start to lose your uh, ability to turn with that tiny little handle. It can be done. The interesting thing about it is it's not the right tool. And when I had to return it to my grandmother's kitchen, it demonstrated that it was not the right tool for all to see. This guy no one cared about. But I really have have hoped to move beyond the Stone Age. I have a rack full of tools for specialized reasons today. I don't know what it weighs. It's hard to roll around in my garage. But what I want to say is that using the right tool always makes the job easier. Have you found that to be true? Getting the right tool makes the job easier. I have found even if you get the screwdriver that's the right size for the screw that you're trying to drive, that makes the job easier. If it's too big or too small, it slips, it doesn't fit right, it causes the screw to be messed up. Having the right tool makes the job a lot easier. Using the right thing for the right role. Part of what we were talking about this morning and handing out that sheet to you today saying, hey, take a look at what you think you might fit in, what you might enjoy doing, is because 
we don't want to be driving nails with rocks. Now, you can drive a nail with a rock, right? Say yes. If you haven't tried it, I'll loan you this rock. But ultimately, there are better tools for the job. And when you have the hammer, it goes much better. You can drive a screw with one of these. But really, this is for spreading peanut butter on my bread. Not for driving screws. If I have a screwdriver, especially if it's a power screwdriver, that job just goes so much better. More power. Today I want to talk about and begin a series of conversations about the foundations of Grace Point. We're talking about the things that this church sort of establishes its identity on and the things that give us the direction for the way we go about life. One of those things is an understanding that the believer is designed for the service of God. One of the other things, and I'm going to talk about both of these today, and I'm trying to get all, go to all the way through it without keeping you here past, oh, one or two o'clock, is that grace is the foundational principle upon which these other things are built, including the purpose and direction for your life. Okay? Okay. So, just remember, God designed people specific to a role. That includes you. Right? God doesn't do haphazard stuff. God doesn't do halfway stuff. He doesn't just throw something at the wall and see what happens. He designed each individual on the planet. And we have this concept that, oh, you know, he just threw some DNA together and bam, here I was. Not really. The biblical picture is that he knit you together in your mother's womb. Knit you together in your mother's womb. One on another, on another, on another, on another. He designed that DNA strand that is uniquely you. And that the foundation for all of this is grace. Got it? All right. On the screen, Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. You recognize this passage? It's the end of the last series we were doing. Jesus said, look, if you've listened to this sermon and you do the things that I've told you about here, if you build your house on the things that I've talked about here, the foundation of the house will hold no matter what storm comes and you'll go forward and you'll, and it will stand. So we're looking at that foundation piece first today. Grace point holds grace to be foundational. That does come up in the name. Grace Point holds grace to be foundational. The bedrock text for grace, notice the foundation terminology, I hope you're catching that, just, just, you know. The bedrock text is Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9. God saved you by His grace, this is the New Living Translation just to give you a different way of hearing it so that you don't start anticipating and not listen. God saved you by, by His grace when you believed. Saved you by His grace when? When you believed. When you believed. When you got your stuff together? No. no. When you had stayed at it long enough? No. God saved you when you began giving offerings? No. no. God 
gave you his grace and covered you with salvation when you believed. Paul uses the illustration of Abraham. He says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. We looked at that passage. The next passage, he's back to doubting. But he was covering him with his grace, covering him with his righteousness. He was substituting his righteousness for Abraham's because Abraham believed. Remember the big crisis in, in the history of the world came in the garden when Adam and Eve stopped believing. They stopped trusting God, broke away from that relationship and that faith in him. And when they broke away from that, they lost the connection, the relationship that sustained their very life. We'll get to that a little bit further. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. Did you notice the apostle felt like it was important to put that in? And you can't take credit for, credit for this. It's a gift from God. A gift must be free in order to be a gift. Right? You got that piece? If you have a gift from someone and they ask you to pay them back, is it a gift? No, if they give you a gift and they give it to you cheaply, is it a gift? No, it's called a bargain. We are given a gift when it is absolutely free. So if you are saved by grace when you believe and it is a gift from God, it is of necessity without strings. You got that? I know it's hard to hold on to that. It's hard to keep that in your mind, but this is so foundational. Everything else has to be built once this principle is in place. This is a cornerstone of who we are and what we believe. Not just here, but period for Christians. This is a cornerstone. This is what Jesus died to give us access to. This is what the the cross was about, to make grace accessible to you and to me. It is a gift from God, not a reward for good things we have done. And again, the apostle throws in a little note. So none of us can boast about it. Nobody gets to stand there in front of everyone else in heaven and say, I got here the old-fashioned way. I earned it. Nobody gets in on that. Nobody gets in by that possibility. Your righteousness must not be just righteousness in activity. Your righteousness must be, must be righteousness in motivation. How are you doing with motivation? It's easy enough to keep my fingers out of the out of the mess. It's very hard to keep my heart and my mind out of it. It must be perfect righteousness, which includes not only your actions, but the motivation for those actions. That perfection in righteousness is the standard of Jesus. And it's the reason for grace. Got it so far? Okay, good. Moving right along. The need of grace, clear, simple thing. We have a problem. According to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, everyone has sinned. Does that include you? Better question. Does it include the person next to you? Look him over before you answer. Give him a quick glance. Be careful if it's somebody else's spouse. Look the other side. Everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. So the biblical picture here is that we're all messed up, right? Grace comes because of the brokenness of mankind. Admitting that brokenness, brokenness, admitting our spiritual poverty is step one. Knowing we have the need, turning to Jesus for that need. That's what repentance is. Repentance is I was going away from God and I turned and headed toward God. 
I headed toward. And when, when, the, when the prodigal heads home, the father goes out and meets him a long way off. You are covered by his grace because you're in desperate need of that grace. I am covered by his grace because I am in desperate need of that grace. All have sinned and fallen short of God's standard. The problem, the wages of sin is death. Stop. All have sinned and we've earned with our hard efforts a wage. Death. The wage is something we've earned. Get the, get the contrast. The wage is something we've earned. What did we earn? Death. The gift is something we haven't earned. What did we get as a gift? Eternal life. Salvation. Wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Get the picture of the gospel? This is what's so revolutionary about Christianity. This sets it apart from everything else. You can't manipulate God. You can't earn salvation. You can't get yourself toward him, closer to him. You can't make him like you more or like you less. That's the declaration of the New Testament. He loves you with an everlasting love and he desperately wants to take you home. And so he offers to anyone who is willing... The answer to the wages of sin, the death of Christ, a substitute for you and me, so that he might give the gift of eternal life to anyone and everyone who wants it. So this describes some reality. Do you know what descriptive law is? Do you know what descriptive law is? We bring it up every once in a while. Descriptive law is a law that describes a reality. Okay? Prescriptive law is a law that tells you of something you must do. Descriptive law. Will this knife fly when I let go of it? Are you sure? Why not? Well, why does gravity have to be involved? Who said gravity has to work? Descriptive law describes the reality that things go down. Gravity works. Descriptive law is what physicists spend their time doing. Physicists spend their time looking for ways to describe reality. Descriptive law is what God's law is. Descriptive law, catch the next thing, cannot be broken. If I go jump off the building, does wishing and hoping make me fly? Does changing my mind about wanting to fall make me fly? Does, does really, really, in, in all of my understanding, with all of my deepest, deepest feelings, make me fly? No. Because it's a description, not a prescription. Can I blow through the red light without getting a ticket? Yes. Yes. Can I blow through another car in the middle of the intersection without facing physics? Descriptive. Two masses cannot occupy the same space. Sounds pretty stupid, doesn't it, really? First time you hear that as a little kid, you're like, well, duh. But it's a very important thing. It's simply describing that two things can't be in the same place at the same time. That's what the stoplight's about. 
The stoplight is simply a prescriptive law to keep me from running into a descriptive law. Got it? Say yes, just to, just to encourage me, because I need to keep going. Okay. Descriptive law is God telling us what is true. The wages of sin is death is a descriptive reality. Here's why. God is the creator and the sustainer of life. Get both. The creator and the sustainer. Sustainer is very important in this conversation. Creator and sustainer of life. Number two, God is love and sin brings evil into man. God is love. First chapter, John chapter four. Sin brings evil into the heart of man. Genesis chapter three, right? You're with me on those, those pieces. We're, we're building a little house here. Number three, sin creates separation from God who sustains life. Stop. Wages of sin is death. Why? Because ultimately it brings separation from the one who sustains life. Do you understand? See, what we've tended to believe is that the wages of sin is death because God's kind of ticked. He's kind of mad at us. He's kind of irritated with us. And when he gets angry, he kills stuff. That's what we believe. Think about it. Do you have a little kernel of that down there? Oh, don't mess up. Don't make God mad. Don't make God mad. You make God mad someday. You're going to get one of these. Right? Isn't that, what you, isn't that what's down there deep in kernel in your, whole, in your soul? That is a brokenness of the sinful heart and an evil, critical understanding of the character of God. If God is love, as his base definition of who he is, then this wages of sin thing has to have a real explanation that is true to that. God is the sustainer of life. If I take the batteries out of this thing, what happens to it? It's no longer functional, right? Because I pull out of it what is sustaining it, what's keeping it going. I'm, I'm pulling the power source, right? And now I can point this thing at Sam all day long and nothing's going to happen. But, now I have to be able to see, if the battery, the power source is there, then sustained, then empowered, it can continue to do its job. When a believer, separated by the evil of his own heart, chooses not to follow after God, he chooses death because he chooses separation from the one who sustains his very life. Get it? Okay. Here's a little picture of it. Our guy Moses. Remember Moses? Charlton Heston, that'll help you with the picture. He's up on the mountain with God. He's been up there a lot. He's been up there 40 days at a time. And he's getting to be really close with God. He's starting to feel that connectedness. And he's starting to really want to just be drawn into an even closer relationship. And so he says, God, God, we've been hanging out a lot. I like it. It's great. I'm hearing your voice regularly. I mean, you've even written on a piece of rock and given it to me. This has been wonderful, but I'd like to see your face. Remember the story? Moses says, I'd like to actually see you. Could we do that? And God says to him, no. No. You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and what? 
live. Why? Sin. Sin is embedded in Moses' heart. And until God transforms that at the end of time, the necessity of that contact ends Moses' life. Wages of sin being death. By the way, that, I took that picture on Mount Sinai. That is an actual cleft in an actual rock at Mount Sinai. I'm not saying it's the right rock, but it's awfully cool that it's there. And if you looked really close at the picture, it almost looks like, like the knuckles on the inside of a hand inside there in the top. Just saying. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by and you can look at the back of me. Do you remember what happened when Moses saw the back of God? He glowed the rest of his life like a light bulb. How cool would that be? If you came in one, one Sabbath morning and everybody went, whoa, been with God. Look, 40 watt. Oh, 50 watt. Oh, 500 watt. By just seeing that back appearance of God. Do you know the people who follow God actually do have a certain glow about them? Yeah. It comes, I think, from the joy and the peace. There's, a, there's a, a, a place where you're in the world where you're just cool with it. You're just okay. You're just good. And that the, the scene on your face changes. The squint of anxiety has gone. The frown of concern is gone. You're just at rest. I mean, you look like a baby sleeping. You know that yeah, everybody says you look at a baby when they're sleeping and they're such angelic faces. That's how you look when you've, when you've just given it all to God and you're just good. Just at peace. The sin, pro- sin is the problem. Grace is the answer. Sin is the problem. Grace is the answer. Wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Sin is the problem. Grace is the answer. The wages of sin are our direct problem. The sacrifice of Christ is God's direct answer. Notice, in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ. In his holiness and his covering. In his sacrifice. In Christ. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There's no other way. So we talked about the narrow gate a little while back. Okay, so those of you who are present, we talked about the narrow gate. You know what's narrow about the gate? It's the only one. It's the only way through. It's the only possibility. It's a narrow gate. It's the only option. Broad ways lead to other things. But one gate gets you into the presence of God, gets you into the salvation of God, gets you into the covering of his grace. That is the gate that is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Seems like it's a pretty broad, easy entry, right? How are you doing with it? How does it work out for you? What's the practical application? Do you find it difficult to sustain and to maintain and continue? That's what he means by it being difficult. God never lies to us. He never lies to us. He said, hanging on to this simple sounding thing is going to be tough. There'll be days when you're really good with it. And there'll be days when you're struggling with it. And there'll be days you'll be away from it. Because it's tough to hang on to. It's tough to keep in your heart. Keep your, your, keep your mind in that direction. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Here's your part. You ready for your part? You've been waiting for this whole, the whole time, right? What is your part? 
If we confess our sins, He, God, Jesus, the Trinity, count them all, is faithful. What does it mean to be faithful? Always doing it, always there. Faithful and just. Faithful and just. Just means he has the right to do it. Jesus earned the right to do it. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Does that include you? Does that leave the opportunity open for you? Are you sure? Somebody's here. Some of you are here right now who doubt this. It's an option for you. The opening is there for you. The choice is yours. If we confess our sin, if we say, I know I'm wrong, I did it. I recognize that I'm in need of salvation. That's what confession is really about. Confession is really about recognition of need. Here's here's how I know it's about not enumerating every sin. Careful. Listening. Here's how I know that this confession idea is not about enumerating every sin. Because even that is my ability based. Even that is based on my ability, my willingness, and I'm in charge of my salvation again. Do you see it? Confess most certainly anything God brings to you, but staying up nights trying to figure out what the last thing you might need to confess is, is just a jump into the legalism pool. It's just a jump into the legalism pool where you take responsibility for your own sin. Based on my ability to remember all the things I've ever done and confess all the things I've ever done, forgiveness comes to me. No, this is about realizing that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. That's what this is about. This is about realizing I have committed the sins. I'm part of those all have sinned and I need eternal life from Jesus. Why the self-sacrifice of Jesus? This gets, some, this gets some press and some conversation. People say, well, you know, why, why would God have this happen? Isn't this just human sacrifice? Yada, yada, blah, blah, blah. Why the word, why the self-sacrifice of Jesus? Jesus says, no one makes me do this. I do it of my own volition. Why the self-sacrifice of Jesus? Catch the word. Now, this is, you should read this whole section of Romans chapter 3. That he might be just... And the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's the deal. The wages of sin is death. Jesus' death is a substitutionary act. Just like killing a lamb in the sanctuary was a substitutionary act. Not, get this, not a meritorious act. Substitutionary act, not a meritorious act. Because otherwise, sacrificing a lamb would save you, and therefore the lamb saves you. And therefore, you're back to another form of paganism and legalism. All of pagan religion is based on the opposite. All of pagan religion, every single one, is based on my ability to make God do something by my activity. Every single bit of it. That's why I've said to you before, legalism is simply a brand of paganism. We make God into some sort of idol, idol, idol that we can manipulate. He gave himself for mankind so that as a substitution, God was just 
in being the justifier. Do you get it? Now, people argue, well, God can make any rule he wants. Yep, he could. Yep, God could say, I'm doing this any way I want to do it, and I'm doing it because I'm God. But then you leave an opening for the accuser of the brethren to accuse God. And you're back to the problem that started the whole mess, doubting the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God. Get it? This, this grand conflict that we talk about twists up right here. That God may both be just and the justifier. He gave his own life as a substitution for ours. So I'm going to move on to the next piece. This is going to sound like a different topic. It's a segment of the same. The importance of knowing God. It's all through the scripture that we find out a way to know God, that others will know God, that you might know God, that they might know God. The Egyptians, the, the plagues fall on Egypt and God says, so that they might know who I am. God, Israel gets into trouble and the Amorites or the Ammonites or the Philistines or whoever else comes crashing in. And God says, so that you may know that I am God. And then, then when they get thrown out, God says, so that they might know that I am God. This business of knowing who God is and knowing that he is God is a big deal. It's a big deal. There are no other gods. So knowing there is a God and knowing that this is him is a huge deal in the salvation of not just Israel, but everyone around them. Here's a quote from Ezekiel. In this way, I will show my greatness and holiness and I will make myself known to all the nations of the world. Then they will know that I am the Lord. That narrow gate, there's only one God. That narrow gate, there's only one sacrifice, Jesus. There's nothing else you can do to get the end that you desire. Heaven is accessed through this one point. That's the point. Through Christ, through God, by His grace. Period. So it becomes very, very significant that you know God. The other half of this is the coolest part to me. Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So if you're, if you're catching what I'm giving you, if you're listening to what I'm doing, if you agree and connect with me and my word, you are my disciples indeed. Let me stop you for a second. Does it say, if you get a PhD in theology so that you can fully understand my word, you are my disciples indeed. If you learn Greek and Hebrew so that you can understand it in the original language, well, then you are my disciples indeed. Does it set a meritorious goal for you in the process? So is merit part of the process? No. If you abide in my word, if you stay connected with it, if you stay in it, if you listen to me, if you talk to me, if you're in that relationship with me, you are my disciples indeed. If you're in that relationship with me, you're, in my, you're my disciples indeed. You've seen the 12 disciples. Are they stellar, meritorious examples? Praise God, they are not. How about David? David, the man after God's own heart, is he a stellar, meritorious example? No. How about Moses? Moses is the man on the mountain getting the commandments. Is he a stellar, meritorious example? 
No. In fact, read the end of Moses' life. He blames Israel for whacking the rock. I'm not able to go into the promised land because of you people. Right at the end. I mean, at least be wise enough. You're going to die soon. God told you. Get this piece right. Nope. Whining and blaming. He's 120 years old and he's still whining and blaming. So if you're a whiner and a blamer, this is not an excuse, but it is fairly normative. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You shall know the truth. Abide with me. Hang out with me. Be my disciples. And I begin to reveal truth to you. And as you begin to open the door of truth and you begin to see it, you begin to understand it, as you begin to know this, it's going to make you free. It's going to make you free to know the truth. As you get to know Jesus, as you get to know God, as you get in that relationship in such a close, compact, connected way, it's going to begin to change the way you feel. It's going to change the way you act. It's going to be able to change who you are. Your heart actually begins to soften and transform and be different. You're going to know the truth. You're going to know the walk with God. You're going to know God himself. You're going to know that that connection with him. You're going to know Jesus. And that is going to begin to release you, set you free. The problem we have is that we don't trust God. How do you learn to trust? Knowledge. Stay with me. If you know someone who is trustworthy, the better you know them, the more you trust them. And when you begin to trust God, what freedom do you feel? You begin to let go of your worries. You begin to cast all your cares upon him because you know he cares for you. You begin to pray in thanksgiving for what he has done because what he has done projects into the future as what he will do. And you are beginning to become free. Get it? How do you live on this planet and all the mess that it's in, in a state of joy and freedom and peace? Ah, sidle up really close to Jesus. Get really close to him so you know him, so that you can smell his cologne, little heavenly frankincense. You can feel his clothes on your face. That that long hair getting in your eyes. The soft beard rubbing against you. Know him with such intimacy that you begin to regain the trust lost in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden's problem was breaking trust. The restoration is regaining trust. When the trust is regained, it begins to set you free. Get it? And it doesn't say it sets you free to be sinless. It simply sets you free. I know every one of you who has tried to be sinless finds it as shackle, not key. Right? I know I'm beating this meritorious thing, but I really, really know That for all of us, it is the trap. 
in this discussion. And when we get to the end, it's going to get even worse. Given grace because, and this is getting toward that last bit, we're given grace because we are God's masterpiece. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. This is what follows, 8 and 9. We are God's masterpiece. Given grace because you are God's masterpiece. Just let it rest there for a minute. Given grace because you are God's masterpiece. I know, our, I know the human tendency is to say, not me. The text doesn't say, that guy over there, that lady over there, not you. Sorry. The text says, because you are God's masterpiece, you are saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, because you are God's masterpiece. You are. You who have sinned, you who have really messed things up, you have things in, the, in the, your history you hope nobody ever talks about. You are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. You were a masterpiece. You messed it up. He's recreated you as you've accepted Jesus. Get it? Covered by his grace. Washed by his blood. Recreated and fresh. Anybody ever been to to see the ceiling that was painted on, I just lost the name of the place, in the Sistine Chapel? Anybody go there 25 years ago or 30 years ago when it was all kind of black, covered in soot? Anyone ever saw it when it was covered with soot? Raise your hand. One, two, three of us. Somebody raised their hand over there. I didn't see. Four of us. It used to be this dark, almost ominous-looking painting because it was covered by eons of soot all across the ceiling. All the colors were muted and covered up by this smokiness. And everybody thought, man, that's amazing. Look at that painting. It's, it's great. It was, and it was fantastic. And then they cleaned it. They get up there very carefully with like tiny little brushes, Q-tips, and they began to wipe off all of that smoke and soot. And what they discovered was the vibrance of the colors of that masterpiece. If you get a chance today, Google that picture. Google the Sistine Chapel. Old chapel, new chapel. The ceiling before and the ceiling afterwards. Look at the difference. Underlying this thing covered by all this smoke and soot with these amazing, vibrant colors, the masterpiece. I have saved you by grace. Not of yourselves, it is a gift because you are a masterpiece to me. You are a masterpiece to me. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Now I have spent a lot of time talking about the fact that things are not meritorious because of that last line. What I want you to recognize is that you need to tie together you are God's masterpiece and he designed you to fit a specific place in the ministry of the kingdom. Not you are God's masterpiece and now he wants you to get your stuff together. 
He designed you to fit a specific place in the kingdom. Some of you have been good at things since you were a little kid. My oldest son has been a person of strong convictions no matter what since he was two. And we have had some confrontations throughout his life where I believed I was in charge and he believed he was in charge. And the first one was when he was two on a Friday afternoon as we were cleaning up for Sabbath. My youngest son has had a, a skill for being able to see things in three dimensions since the first time I knew he was seven, eight, or nine years old. Very irritating when you're putting something together and your eight-year-old says, Dad, that doesn't go there. <laughs> and is right. <laughs> My daughter has had a gift, and it's a real gift, for never taking anyone else's opinion as fact until she knows it herself. Some of you have been good at something since you were a little kid. Maybe it's something tactile. Builder, artist, musician. You've been good at something since you were a kid because you are, listen carefully, because you are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do that thing. You get it? The thing he planned in you when he created you. I tease you accountant folks a lot. But that is a tremendous gift from God. To be oriented toward detail in a manner that watches and follows and is concerned about those minute things is a gift because you are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do that thing. You are God's masterpiece, given skills and abilities, both physical and spiritual, for the kingdom. You see, we believe that God made you for a purpose, that God made you for a reason. It wasn't accidental. Now, the world has messed a lot of that up, right? The world has done a lot of things that have polluted that picture for you. The world has interrupted it, broken it. Sometimes you've broken it yourself. And you had to glue it back together. And it's not as good as it used to be. But you are still God's masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for his purposes. For his kingdom purposes. If there is no kingdom purpose in your life today, you're missing the greatest joy of your giftedness. If there is no kingdom purpose in your life today, you're missing the greatest joy of your purpose. So here's the end. Foundationally in what we believe as a church, foundationally in who we are, foundationally, God is calling us and covering us by his grace. He is trying to teach us to trust him, to restore the trust that was there in the beginning in the garden. And he is intending to give us a life full and blessed. 
God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can take, can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. For you, we are his masterpiece. He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do good things, the great things he planned for us when he constructed us. Knit you together in your mother's womb. Made you who you are because he likes who you are. Made you who you are because he loves who you are. Made you who you are because through you, the kingdom will be better. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is hard to buy this. It is hard to take it in and accept it because we know ourselves. We know we're messed up. We know we're broken. We know we don't represent you well. We know very often we're like a a rock for a hammer or a butter knife for a screwdriver. We've been accomplishing things we were not designed to do. Show us where we're supposed to go. Show us how our design fits your kingdom's purposes. Challenge us with it. Call us to it. Reveal it to us. Help us to understand how our gifts serve your kingdom. Help us to remember. Help us to hold dearly in our heart the reality that you called us a masterpiece.